I'd love to have you turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And the sermon notes in your bulletin will be absolutely essential. In fact, I'd love to have you go there with me first. Today is that, it's like that first day. I realize those of you with children doing school, fall comes and for some there's kind of that angst of, oh, it's school again. For me, it's the best day of the year. And it feels to me like the first day of school. I was that guy who said, this is great. You get a syllabus and the teacher tells you all the stuff you get to learn, the assignments you get to do. And you go, man, this is like, this is like, this is great. I mean, I get to learn. I get to study. I get books. I sense a lack of enthusiasm in the room. I don't know what that's all about. Uh, You'll need to work through it. But think of it as the first day of school if you liked school. No, I think of it as maybe the first day of summer vacation for the rest of you guys, and maybe that'll translate a little bit. We want to get oriented today to the study we are today going to begin that will take us on a journey all the way through the end of next June. It really will go that far. 34 sermons or thereabouts from from the Gospel of Mark and a whole lot of other study-related things. But this morning, I want to get us oriented that direction. Uh, some people ask me in beginning a study like this, what stuff do you, do you study to get yourself ready? Well, I brought a few of our resources down here. Um, and so if you want to come up, take a picture of those. I put them on a table down here because you're going to ask me. Some of you will. Uh, they run the range from light reading to academic reading, full pot of coffee. Sometimes you measure books by how much coffee it takes to to work on them. Some of those are full pot of coffee books, and uh, they're that. So anyway, if you want to know what stuff uh, I have purchased and the staff has access to all those other guys who will be preaching, those are all resources that that our guys browse. So if that's you, wonderful. But I want to to look with you at your sermon notes. Some of you are familiar with some elements here, but I want to give an orientation because a number of things change today. And as I mentioned last week, seven last words of the church, we've never done it this way before. So you're going to have to pay attention here on this. The first two pages of the sermon notes, the front and the back, are what you're familiar with. All of us who preach prepare something similar to this week to week. We put a, you know, a few little fill-ins in there just because some people really love those. Some people hate them and fill them in right away. That would be me. Um, so I, I'm that guy. But I do it for the sake of those of you who like that and find it helpful. Then you come to the community group notes, and these return during the seasons that we have community groups. Our community groups meet in three sessions. There's a fall, a winter, and a spring, eight weeks in the fall, and then nine weeks in January, February. Then there's a little break, and then there's another session of nine weeks that goes March into early May. Uh, The times in between, we take little breaks. We call them on-ramps and off-ramps, so that if you need to make a change, you can commit to eight weeks in the fall. Come on, you can do this. And then if you need to take a, a, a break or you need to shift schedule or this one's not working for you, just to say, you can make that change, okay? And then you hit January, February, nine, sec- nine weeks as well, a couple weeks off, and then spring. Now, these look different, okay? If you've been in our community groups before, you know that usually there where it says, instead of right now where it says observing the text, you're used to seeing, you know, things to talk about from the sermon. 
Well, really what we're giving you is a little different. The style of the group probably won't change all that much. You'll still be participating by coming to one of the the sermons. That's your biggest preparation. All our groups are sermon-based, meaning your biggest thing to do to get ready for your group is to listen to the sermon. If you're not here on Sunday morning, get online right away and listen to it before your group. So you'll know what everybody else around the room is talking about. All right? That helps. So you'll talk about what, what did you hear on Sunday and things like that. But this year, we're taking a, a, a specific, uh, making a specific effort to teach and to practice what's called an inductive Bible study that's based on reading the Bible, observing the text, seeing what, it, what you notice, what does it say, and then drawing conclusions about especially uh, what, you're supposed to, what you're supposed to know and what you're supposed to do about it. See? So inductive Bible study, you'll recognize. Now, there's an observing the text part. And this week, it looks one way. Next week, it might look a little different. This is intended to be done in your group. If you're thinking, oh, no, this is a lot of homework. No, no, easy, easy. Listen to the sermon, show up. And this is what you'll do in your group. You'll talk about some of these things. You'll read a part of the text. And you'll talk about it together. That's really what you'll do. If you, if you like, you can step right back into the sermon notes because you will all have heard that and you've still got the paper with you. And say, so, what did you think over here? Was he out of his mind or where did that come from? Uh, no, I saw that too. Then you'll notice also, this is new, a section here called preparing for next Sunday sermon because we want you intentionally to take a look at where we're going next week and have put some thought into it. I wonder what's going to be said about that. That's interesting. I've read the text. I wonder why Jesus did that. I wonder why that person said this. What's, what's going on? So we're wanting you to, to talk about this week and prepare for next week. Now, one more thing I need to introduce to you. If you're in a community group, this week you're going to get a little booklet that looks like this. Uh, 250 or thereabouts of y'all, adults, have signed up for community groups. And we'll get these to you. Uh, there's, if you're a community group leader, we've got boxes out there. If you're the first part of the week, we're still making these. We're making them by hand, okay? Nancy Strom is like our uh, uh, inductive Bible study uh, guru, and she's helping. We're working together on this. The purpose of this little book, the whole Gospel of Mark is in here, so the text is here. Um, inductive Bible study, for many people, involves circling things. And saying, wait a minute, that connects over here and drawing a line. Things you might not do in your actual Bible, like big line across the page. Some of you probably do that. Others of you would never do that to God's word. Well, you can do that to this. All right, spindle and mutilate it, draw things, put questions in the margins. There are places for your notes and there's instruction on what inductive Bible study looks like. And some examples of this. So you'll see in the first page or two, Uh, different things that people do. Circled that word with one color. Drew a line underneath that. Underlined every place there's a location where you go, oh, that's interesting. So we're asking you to to look at the Bible. Read the text. Notice what's here. Notice what isn't here. What's missing? Why didn't so-and-so say that? So ask questions of the text. This is intended to be a tool to help you do that. Also in here, my goodness sakes, look at that. You'll get a little page with a pocket. You know what that's for? There's a whole bunch of them at the end of every chapter. It's for your sermon notes. So you can stuff them in there. Now, here's a permission element, and then I'm going to move on, all right? If you're in a community group and you get one of these, if you're not really a, like, take it home and do anything with it, and you're probably going to lose it in your car, 
just leave it at the place where your community group meets. They'll find a place under the coffee table or in the back room, and they'll keep it for you. Place here for your name. Please put your name on these. There'll be 250 of these running around. If you're also, though, the kind of person who would bring that on Sunday, and the same text is here, ESV, it's what I'm preaching from. It's, it's the same thing. You could bring that on Sunday and do all of your notes scrawling over here and stuff the sermon notes here and just use that for a while. Okay? It's like having just the gospel to mark. So this is a tool all of you are going to get if you're in a community group. And you know what? We're going to see what happens. Okay? Some of you are going to love it and think, you know, my goodness, this is the most amazing thing you've ever done. Others of you are going to say, wow, I don't know. It's okay. It's really okay. Bear with us. And anyway, that's a crash course on community groups this year. So I think it's going to be great. Looking forward to ours. Starts Wednesday evening. And uh, I think it's going to be really, really fun. I want to go to your sermon notes, okay? And just a, a little look at what we're going to do today. If you look at those first couple pages, there's a, a welcome to our fall preaching. Ordinarily, most of our preaching here at Sunset Bible Church is, involves preaching through books in the Bible. That's, I call it our bread and butter. We don't do that all the time. Most of it. That's most of what our preaching looks like. Today, I'm giving you a larger section of introduction, okay? So there are going to be six bullet points. I'm going to go through this very quickly, but there's some necessary comments. Some of you love this background material. Others of you look at it and say, nothing there is going to change my life. And let's move on. No problem. But some necessary background comments. Then that next page, we're going to work through verses 1 through 15, and get a feel for what the, the study of the Gospel of Mark is all about. I call it the greatest story ever told based on the 1965 movie by that title that was a telling on the screen of the story of Jesus. Indeed, the greatest story ever told. So I want to pray for us, and we're going to get after it today. All right? So here we go. Pray with me. Our Father, how good it is to be together with God's people and to open the Scriptures together. Thank you for telling us what you're like and what's true. We would never have known otherwise. Thank you for introducing us here on the pages of this text to Jesus through the eyes, the lens, the voice of Mark. Please help us this year, this ministry year, as we study and invest ourselves in the text to learn, to grow, to be encouraged, and to benefit from our time in your word. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And thank you, thank you for your time this morning. So moving then to our introduction, there are six bullet points here, all right, before I step into the reading of the text. There are, in the Bible, there are four books that are often called Gospels. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? They begin the part of the Bible called the New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Older Testament, and the Newer Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first three Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often called the synoptic gospels. That's a cool word that means a similar view. Okay, the meaning of the word would lend itself that direction. So a similar look between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Kind of a chronology of the life of Jesus. John is more of a a thematic book. It's more of a theological topic book. But it's still, all four of them, telling the story of Jesus. Just as you would have four people who watch an event in history and give you their take on it, different color, they notice different things. Uh, Similarly, the four Gospels do that. uh, They benefit one another and give just a little bit of a, a, a different look at what's going on. Mark is 
is by, by content the shortest, which is why some people find it their favorite. My goodness, 16 chapters, you're out. Uh, Luke is actually the gospel, uh, the longest gospel, 24 chapters. Uh, Mark has, or Matthew has 28, but Luke has more material. There's some stuff that'll change your life. But Mark, Mark is the shortest gospel, probably the voice of Peter, okay? There's a whole lot of reasons for this, uh, to understand this. Probably Peter is whispering in Mark's ear about what's going on. He would be the disciple probably behind. Mark was not one of the 12, Peter was. So many uh, scholars would believe this is the voice of Peter as recorded by Mark. Probably uh, the 50s, probably the earliest gospel. Many people would see, scholarly world, would see Mark as first with Matthew and Luke having read Mark. that interesting? I think it's fascinating. Just wait. There's more. John, uh, Mark's first full name is John Mark. You'll find him called that in some places in the New Testament. Uh, he... All the indications in the New Testament are that he came from a well-connected and probably a wealthy family, or at least above average. Uh, We draw some of those conclusions from the fact that in the book of Acts, you find Mark's mom's house, mom and dad's house, house of his origin, as big enough to house a pretty large gathering of the early church. You'll find that in Acts chapter 12. There at Mark's house, well, his mother's house. But big enough, some have, have guessed that maybe it was the site of the Last Supper, Who knows? But I give you some of that. Now, Mark, also, the family of privilege thing. You remember we noted a week or so ago uh, in the gospel, uh, sorry, in the book of Acts, on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary trip, Mark bails and goes home. Remember this? Okay, try this on. If he came indeed from a family of privilege, they had a lot of servants to do stuff for him. This was a kid with no calluses. You know what I'm saying by that? So then he hooks up with Paul and Barnabas to go on a mission trip, and there's work to be done. And Barnabas and Paul are saying, hey, uh, John Mark, young guy, would you grab the bags? And he's looking around saying, well, where are the servants? And they're saying, oh, no, 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 that's you. No callous, this is, I'm guessing now. I'll get to heaven someday, and he's going to say, seriously, and I'll apologize. But, but my, I just wonder, I wonder, all right, uh, house with servants, suddenly he's that guy on a trip. It says in the book of Acts, he goes home. Partway, he leaves. It's like, I'm out. This is way too much work. Uh, he didn't, it just says he went home to his mother. Well, okay. A little later, he, he, he gets himself uh, uh, back in the good favors of the apostles, works for a living, grows some, some depth and some character, earns the respect of the apostle Paul. So uh, those are interesting little details. Also in that third little bullet point, if you're familiar with the little vignette in Mark 14, 51 to 52, um, it would make sense if, if, if that's Mark. It's the only gospel account that includes this curious little story of the guy, little streaker in a, in a sheet. It's in the gospel, I'm just telling you. He's the only one who includes it in the text. Who else would know? So some people have said, I wonder if that was him. I wonder if that was him. He would know, and it would fit... Well, if indeed the Last Supper was at his house, hmm, people wonder about this. Uh, Fourth bullet point. You will notice, probably starting today, Mark's gospel is is a gospel of action. 
He is the one who uses the word immediately or straightway or right away, depending on your translation. Immediately. He uses that word more than any New Testament writer. It's like 41 times. And it's, he's intending to give the idea of action, movement. Uh, if you're a sit-around person, just kind of walk slowly. Mark is the wrong guy for you. He's going to raise your blood pressure. He's going, then this, then this, then this, then this. Now he goes right over here. And then immediately. So action. Uh, the tense of the verbs he uses and so on. He has fewer stories. He's intending to show you Jesus. Not just that you would listen to what Jesus says. He's going to do that too. Some of the other gospel writers give longer uh, accounts of the stories of Jesus. Mark gives more action. Now, this is interesting. Number five, Mark, from all appearances, writes for a primarily Gentile audience. Now, I'll tell you why that's important. So that as you read the text, if you read Matthew... Over and over again, you'll find Matthew telling connections to the Old Testament. As it is written, as it is written, as it is written. Mark does this one time in today's text. That's it. Um, he alludes to Old Testament texts a lot, more than, more than you might think. I'll show you some of that today. But some of the other gospel writers speak of Jewish things where they assume the audience knows that. Mark, it would appear, writes for a more Gentile audience. He explains Jewish topics. He explains Aramaic expressions, things that good Jews would have known. So that's kind of interesting. He's writing, I would say, to us. And then finally, please get this. Mark isn't just telling a story. This isn't bedtime reading. He's not wanting you to read part of this story and take a you know, little yawn and then go to bed. He's intending to arrest your attention by the action and the curious things, the places where something is surprising, where you say, that's weird. The Jewish people didn't follow him. This Gentile person did. That's not what you'd expect if you're paying attention. No, Mark is intending to capture your attention and in particular to lead you to Jesus. He's not wanting to just tell you a story. He's wanting you to meet the Savior. Because to meet the Savior truly is to be changed. And if your life is not changed, chances are pretty good you know things about Jesus, but you've never really met him. You want to think about that a little bit? If, you, if your life has never been changed by Jesus, you probably know things about him, but you've probably never really met him. Because to meet Jesus is to be in a life-changing relationship with him. So Mark is coming along here saying, ladies and gentlemen, meet Jesus and I'll be your guide. Wow. Okay. I think this is amazing. I've given you a three-part outline. Some people like two, some people like five. Um, But that's what I've given you and hope you find it helpful. Okay. I want to shift then to the other side of the page. And from from this point on, we step into the text. I'm going to read it first, just verse 1, then verses 2 through 8, and then 9 to 15. And I will deal with the text in that order, of course, uh, with my comments here on the sheet in front of you. So Mark's first sentence then, I'm saying, is, I believe, his thesis, and it's his title statement. I want to say a few things about it. Mark 1.1, he says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God. There it is. I think that's his main point. Now, the beginning, interestingly enough, it it draws to mind another Old Testament book. Any ideas what that would be? Yeah, Mark's going to do this over and over again. 
he's going to refer to something. And if, you, if you're familiar with Old Testament scripture, you're going to say, that sounds a lot like. So I pull, it, I pull it out here because it's the beginning of a whole bunch. That sounds a lot like that. That sounds a lot like that chapter in Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter two. That sounds a lot like the prophet Isaiah. And he's doing it on purpose. The beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was the beginning of God's work in, in creation. And here, Mark says, this is the beginning of the story of redemption. Old Testament is preparing the way, the first redemptive event, the story of the Exodus the first salvation event, prefiguring the second. So here then Mark says, this is the beginning of that second half. The first exodus, this is the beginning of the second. The, the second and the biggest redemptive event, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel is a genre, the type of book you're reading. It's also the good news of the story of Jesus. It's what he did. So good news is intended here. The good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now look at my sermon notes here. You see what I did? I'm just, I'm pressing on something. Um, Jesus, the Christ. Many people do not realize that Jesus and Christ are not Jesus's first and last name. You know, like Bill Wilson or Bob Marley or something. They think Jesus Christ, first name, last name. No, actually not. Jesus is his name. Christ is a title. Did you know that? We often use that synonymously. Well, Christ, yes, Christ, the anointed one, the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. Now and then you'll see that in a, in a text where it'll say Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one. Christos means the anointed one. So when, when Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Christ, he's making an announcement. This one we call Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the long foretold one, the one who's the topic of the Old Testament. It's him. So that's what you should read when you see the term Jesus Christ. You should remember Christ, we don't call it out all the time, Christ is a title for the Jewish Messiah, the anointed one. Further, he says, the son of God. Now this, again, this is an explanation of all that Mark is intending to do for us in the chapters that follow. It's the story of Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. This is a declaration of his deity. Now, pay attention to this, please. At the very beginning, Mark is, Mark is beginning a bookend. You're going to love this, I hope. If you're into literary stuff at all, you'll notice Mark does a lot with threes. Three of these, three of these, three of these. We won't always call them out, but you'll notice three of these if you're, if you're looking. He also does a lot of what we call bracketing in literary terms. So he says something at the beginning, and then he says the same thing at the end. He introduces a topic, and then he says it again chapters later. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to fly right by it and not even notice. So here, Jesus, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, Okay, along the way, the main people saying, you're the son of God, I know who you are, are demons. But the next big proclamation of Jesus as son of God, again, statement of deity, comes in chapter 15, verse 59, at the end of the story, right as Jesus dies on the cross. Remember the Roman centurion who says, surely this was the son of God. So that's the bracket. Jesus is announced at the beginning by Mark, he's the son of God. And a Roman, not even a Jewish guy, 
is credited in the text as making the the concluding remark. Surely this was the son of God. Son of God. Son of God. It's a bracket from the beginning to the end. Kind of things that you should notice. So this is a thesis statement. And then in chapter 15, he draws the conclusion and says, did you see what I just told you? I just illustrated Jesus in all of his glory. Now, this is not the only statement of deity here. This text drips with the deity of Jesus. Fully God, fully man. God in the flesh. This text all over the place has those fingerprints on it. I'll show you more. So the grand introduction, that statement, that statement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. We come then to verses two through eight. I put it under the heading, pay attention, Elijah That is, John the baptizer has come. Oh, buddy, let me tell you, pay attention. There's stuff here. Okay, I'm going to read two through eight. Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. That's worth writing down. Join him for lunch. He preached and said, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. A job, by the way, that was assigned to the lowest slave, the one who showed up late for work that day. That's the job. Um, and And John says, I'm not even worthy to undo the sandals of this one who's coming. I have baptized you, verse eight, with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I'll stop right there. What is going on right here? Three elements I want to point out here in the text. Those are on your sermon notes. This is the only, te- only text in Mark's gospel, this one right here, verse 2, where he specifically says, as it is written, which is pointing to a fulfillment of Scripture. I mentioned Matthew does it constantly. Mark does it one time here, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now, he mentions, of course, he's doing this to say Scripture is being fulfilled. Something you should notice here, this, this quotation in verses 2 and 3, he says it's from Isaiah the prophet. Now, now <laughs> the complexity of Mark as a writer, okay? You've you, you got to get this. this. This is a compilation of three texts. It's, quote, it's, it's attributed to Isaiah. He's not being inaccurate. He is following the normal standard of the day by referring to the loudest voice, which would be Isaiah the prophet. We're going to go there in just a couple of moments. He is giving a line from Deuteronomy, the law, then the minor prophets, Malachi, and then Isaiah. He's pulling together lines from representative of the whole corpus of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, Malachi, the, the law, the minor prophets, the major prophets, to announce Jesus. That's what he's doing. He attributes it to Isaiah for very clear reasons. This is the loudest voice in the room. But, but many times, people need to understand and don't um, stylistic things, literary things. Okay, what I mean by that is this. There are people, I don't know if you know this, <laughs> you do. People pick on the Bible sometimes for really silly things. They'll look at this. Sometimes even well-meaning Christians are going to go, Wait, it says Isaiah the prophet, but it, really that line's from Deuteronomy. Well, he just made a mistake. No, he didn't. 
That was a normal convention in writing, if you would know that. It's a normal convention in writing to pull together three and give the loudest voice and just kind of attribute them. It happens in the Bible a lot. Sometimes in Hebrews, there's a number of other texts we could look at where there's a compilation of here, here, and here. And they say, well, as Isaiah the prophet said, and they know that you know it's from three different places because you've read your Bibles. But they're saying Isaiah the prophet as the loudest voice and the biggest, Isaiah the prophet, certainly. So, so it's, this is not an inaccuracy. It's, it was a stylistic thing. It's the way they did stuff. And many times we do similar things. doesn't mean it's inaccurate. People pick at the Bible for all kinds of stuff, though, because they don't know how ancient people wrote. That's my disclaimer for a whole lot of stuff. If you see a meme on some of this, just kind of wink and say, yeah, I know you don't know what you're talking about. But say it nicely, or else it comes off really poorly. So scripture is being fulfilled here. Now, I put here, second bullet point, we're familiar with the opening acts in concerts, etc. John the baptizer was a forerunner, but man, pay attention to this. We quickly say John the baptizer uh, was a forerunner of Jesus. That's not inaccurate, but I want to go a little further. Because to, to take a look at the Old Testament, remember I said this text is full of, of, of allusions, A-L-L, allusions to the, to, to, to the deity of Jesus. It's a loud statement of his deity. So it is here in this case. I want to go back to Isaiah. I want you to hear the text that Mark is referring you to. And I want you to notice who John is announcing Okay, go to Isaiah 40, if you would. You can stay right where you're at if you like. I'll read it. But I want to go back to Isaiah 40. And of course, this is that, 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 that place in Isaiah where there's a shift, the first 39 chapters, more about judgment and things taking place in history. Chapter 40 is this comfort, comfort my people section, uh, beauty and glory of the, uh, the attributes of God. But in chapter 40, verse 3, you find this reference that Mark is quoting and is quoted in the other Gospels. So we read, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You'll see a little different emphasis in how the lines are prepared from how we often say it. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for whom? For God. God is coming. God is coming. Make, make ready in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. The glory of Yahweh. The glory of Old Testament. God. The one true God. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it. How do you know this is true? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It will take place. John the Baptist is a forerunner of. You ready? God himself, who is coming. God himself is coming. And here comes Jesus. You see any implications of this? You should. Old Testament prophet being drawn in here to the New Testament telling of the story to say this one who is to come to prepare the way for God himself. And here comes Jesus, as you'd read in John chapter one, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, it isn't just some Jewish guy, some human. No, this is God in the flesh who is coming. This is a statement of Jesus' deity. Wow, wouldn't even notice, but, but it's there. 
So John is a forerunner, yes, the Jewish Messiah, but it's a statement that this Jewish Messiah is God himself, God come in the flesh. I note here that third little element under that section of your sermon notes, John's dress and style calls to mind the ministry of Elijah, the, the, the camel's hair, the rough look, um, living out in the desert, eating such an interesting diet. His is a call to repentance, a call of preparation. One is coming. He's not pointing to himself. He's pointing to the one to come. Now, I want to I comment on two things. Uh, these are not in your sermon notes, but just little bonuses for your own study in, as you read and study the Bible and as you think about the Bible with other people, okay? Um, it's interesting to me how sometimes even well, well-meaning Christians say things that we haven't thought through real well. I'm sorry. I do that too. But it's interesting in verse 5. Can we just look here at a figure of speech? The Bible is loaded with figures of speech. They are not inaccuracies. They're figures of speech. So you read in verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were coming out to him. Okay, who came out to be baptized? What's it say? All. And I've heard well-meaning Christians say, and all means all. Oh, it does. So you're telling me every last man, woman, and child in the city of Jerusalem came out and was baptized? I mean, there was nobody home. There was nobody home that day. Every single human was out at the River Jordan. The whole country, everybody was, it says all. So if you're a person who has said um, inaccurately, all means all, I'm so sorry. There are places all means all. Let me give you an example. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. How do I know that means all? It's because I read the rest of the text surrounding it. And it's really clear. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. No one seeks for God, Romans 3. Very clear in the text around that interprets it. All means all. Here you would look at it and say, well, it says all. Please don't say all means all everywhere. It doesn't. Because, um, listen, we do this, you ready? All the time. In fact, everyone does this. We use figures of speech and we don't even notice that we're doing it. Uh, and everybody understands. Everybody, See what I'm doing? We, we understand what someone means by this. And we don't say, boy, you're lying. Which is what people often do with the Bible. Right? See, it says everyone came out. I know it, it, it's lying. Wow. Wow. So when you say, did you notice this in the news? Everyone's talking about it. Nobody's going to look at you and say, liar. Everyone isn't. They're gonna, they get it. They understand. You met a lot of people. Okay, I press on my point enough. Sometimes people, uh, in their attempts to attack the Bible, uh, ignore things like figures of speech and normal literary conventions to find fault with things that they themselves do all the time. Okay, well, I just think that's important. One other thing I'll just mention, and this is a lead into where we're going here in a moment. Verse 8 Verse 8, John the Baptist says of Jesus, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's not just a random comment. Because as we'll see in a minute, whose prerogative is it to send the Holy Spirit? Answer, it's God's. So if this one who is coming has the prerogative to baptized with the Holy Spirit. That one must be God. 
because that's his job. Okay, interesting. Pay attention. Elijah is coming. So this is how Mark introduces, draws together these Old Testament references and says, this one is announcing the coming of God. And here comes Jesus. Okay, I want to go to verses 9 through 15. A couple little vignettes are here. The baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, and the beginning of his ministry. A few comments on these that just get me all excited. Wow, this is amazing stuff. Verse 9 then, as I read. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water immediately... There it is. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. Please pay attention to the words. The heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him, on Jesus, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days. That should capture your attention. Any other 40-day periods or 40-year periods in the Old Testament? Yes, He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying that time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, so little vignettes. Mark, again, as I said earlier, he gives a shorter treatment of these than others but super packed with power and meaning. So I look first, verses 9 and nine to 11, this baptism of Jesus. Again, this is a shorter telling of the story. Some of the other gospel writers give more detail. John saying, well, why are you coming to me to be baptized? And Jesus saying, uh, let it be so. I want to fulfill all righteousness. So Mark does not mention any of that, but he does something the other gospel writers don't. You ready? Mark and Luke, sorry, Matthew and Luke both speak of this moment and say the heavens were opened. Nice, gentle phrases. Mark grabs something else. He says the heavens were, what is it? Torn open. He uses a violent term. It really is. It's an aggressive term. They were, they were rent asunder which in a good Jewish mind, somebody who knows their Bible, come on, is going to say, that's in, that's in Isaiah 42. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And what's happening here? The heavens are rent. God has come. And this is the moment of his announcement. This is not the moment when he becomes the son of God. This is the moment when he is announced as such. Okay? The heavens are rent further, if I may. And I put this on your sermon notes. Isaiah 64, not 62. I think I said 62. Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. They're torn open. Mark uses the same term twice. Remember the bracketing thing? The book ends? He does it again. This term for torn open shows up in the gospel of Mark two times. One here and one at the other end of the story. Mark 15, verse 38. What's happening in that text? This is Jesus dying on the cross. It is finished. What happens when Jesus dies on the cross? He's bearing our sin in his body on the cross. He is dying in our place, substitutionary death. He is the one. 
before the Father upon whom the sins of the world are being placed, the wrath of God pouring out upon him, his death on the cross, Jesus crying out as in other gospels, it is finished. And at that moment, Mark tells us, the veil of the temple, that which separated the Holy of Holies from, from the front, the holy place from the Holy of Holies, that separating sinners dare not go, only the high priest on the day of atonement. That, that, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. If a human tore it, you'd tear it from bottom to top. The veil of the temple that separated sinners from the holy God is torn in two. It's rent asunder. Mark uses the term twice. The heavens are rent as the Son of God is announced. The, the door to heaven being opened that Jesus would come. And at the other end, the, the, the veil of the temple rent in two so that sinners through Jesus can approach a holy God. Mark intends you to notice this. Rend, rend the heavens and come down. He did. He did. He did. And he did that so that he would go to the cross and be our sin bearer. That we might be able to approach a holy God. Wow. Mark's, Mark's leading. He's leading. He's preparing the way here so that the reader or the listener uh, can, can hear the story and say in chapter 15, I've heard that before. That was back here. And I see the beauty of what Jesus has done. Wow. Next little element. We're not done with this. Plumbing the depths. Man, this is good. Verse 11. Oh, verse 10. The spirit descends. The whole trinity is present. God, the father in his voice, the son in the water, the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice in verse 11 comes from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now I've noted one element here on your sermon notes. This should call to mind God's word to Abraham. Remember Genesis 22, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son. Do you remember the words? It's supposed to make you think about this, okay? As God said to Abraham, go take your son. He said, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Yitzhak, Isaac. He says it twice, two different places in the text. Take your son, your only son, the son you love. Isaac and sacrifice him. Where is this? Mount Moriah. Where is that? Jerusalem. It's Temple Mount. Wow. How cool is that? Further, this is not in your sermon notes. This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. Two Old Testament references. That phrase, the voice from heaven, God himself, is using two Old Testament texts. You'll never guess. Psalm 2, a royal psalm. A a psalm that is quoted over and over again, especially in the book of Hebrews. Uh, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. It's a statement of deity. That's the first part. You are my beloved son. The readers right away who know their Old Testament text will say, Psalm 2, a royal psalm, is God from heaven speaks of this coming king who will reign. In you I am well pleased. Where is that? Isaiah 42. You want to take a look? You should. That that phrase from heaven is drawing to mind these Old Testament texts. It is not a mistake. Isaiah 42. Of whom does the prophet speak? 
God using Old Testament text to speak and to announce the identity of his son. Isaiah 42, look at this. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. That's well-pleased. What else? I will put my spirit upon him. Really? When is that? It's, it's Mark 1. It's the baptism of Jesus, the spirit coming in a whole new way to mark, to mark Jesus, not as becoming something he wasn't to mark him as who he was. I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This isn't just about having good judges and having good laws. No, no, even more than that. He'll bring forth justice for the nations. How is that so of this anointed one, this servant, this suffering servant, Isaiah 53? How is it so that he brings forth justice to the nations? Here's how. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore the punishment that was due our sin. So that, as Romans 3 says, that God could be just and forgive sinners. You want justice for the nations? You need a Savior who will bring justice for all time, cosmic justice, if you will. So that God can be just by not overlooking sin. If God just said, ah, forget it, when you and I sin, he would be unjust Just like if somebody did something terrible to a member of your family and the judge said, ah, forget it. Let it go and behave better next time. And you would cry out, that's wrong, and you'd be correct. Don't you let that person back on the street. You know what they did? You'd be crying out for justice. It's all over the news now when something happens and there's a miscarriage of justice. You'd be crying out for justice. Similarly, if God had just said, forget it and ignore it to your sin, if he, was, if he just ignored it, he would be unjust. No, Jesus died on the cross paying the penalty for our sins so that God can be fully just and the one who declares sinners forgiven. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3 is the beauty of the gospel. That's why Jesus died the horrible death that he did, that God could be just and declare sinners just. He will bring justice to the nations. Oh, you better believe he will. It's not just about better laws. It's about satisfaction for sin once and for all. Wow. So I'm saying this in Mark one, this God's voice from heaven is drawing together Psalm two, a royal psalm. He is God. You're my son. This day have I begotten you. Statement of deity. And marking Jesus as the servant of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I've chosen. The one in whom my soul delights. My spirit upon him. He'll bring justice to the nations. He's marking Jesus by that voice from heaven. By the way, remember I said Mark loves to do things in threes? I think you'll find in the gospel of Mark three voices from heaven. Here's number one. Things to watch for as you read the Bible. Now, almost done. Verse 12. Right after this amazing event with the baptism of Jesus, we read the Spirit, again, violent term almost, drives him out, thrusts him out into the wilderness. Wilderness in the Bible, of course, a place of testing, a place of deliverance. Old Testament, Israel is called God's son at certain points. 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years of wandering after this first redemptive event, the first exodus. So here, Jesus, the one who is the ultimate sacrifice for sin, the one who is the ultimate Passover lamb, begins to lead the second exodus. That's kind of interesting. Forty days being tempted by Satan. 
There's a whole lot we could say about this moment. Matthew gives more detail and color. Mark isn't being neglectful, but he's pointing something out. Jesus, who in his baptism identifies with sinners, cannot very well be our savior if he is one himself. And so out he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And unlike the first Adam, we've preached about this recently, the first Adam in his temptation disobeyed. Jesus, called the second Adam, fully obeys, doesn't he? Where the first Adam fails, the second succeeds. Jesus, fully obeying the Father, because you don't. Do you see this? He could die on the cross for our sins. And when we trust him as our Savior, the, the, his, his righteous life, his obedience, credited to us, we who have no righteousness of our own. My sin he bore on the cross. The benefit of his perfect obedience wraps around me as a robe of righteousness when I trust Christ as my Savior from sin. That's the gospel. That's how this story begins. Do you see who is being introduced? Do you hear the loud voices from the Old Testament saying, it's him, look at him, meet this Jesus. And I will close with Jesus' first words recorded in the gospel. Verses 14, 15. The first words of Jesus recorded by Mark. Do you see this? Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, here it is, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are the first words of Jesus in this book. The time is now. The kingdom of God is drawing near. Repent and believe. And I would just pull that from 2,000 years ago and drop it right here today. In hearing the word of God preached, there is a certain sense in which the opportunity is now. The opportunity is now for any in this room, listening now, listening later, elsewhere. Repent and believe. Jesus, the Savior, Son of God, died on the cross for you so that you could be forgiven by a holy God, your sins fully paid for, covered in the righteousness of Christ, become part of his family. Repent and believe the gospel. It's the call of scripture. We get to, we get to study this book 33 more times. Man, it's great. I'm so excited about what's to come because I get to study ahead of y'all. So I know some of the things that are coming and I can hardly wait to get there. I'd love to have you stand with me. Uh, let's pray together as we conclude our time. Our Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the joy of studying the Word of God. Please give us that as a congregation this year as we step into a whole new season of study. Our groups who will go in greater depth and time into these conversations as well. Bless us with joy. Bless us with diligence. Bless us with seeing and loving what we see, loving what we hear, and then in gratefulness obeying, being changed by you, Spirit of God. So help us now as we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.